Hi, this is Richard Watts, and this is the podcast of Triple R's Smart Arts, a weekly radio show bringing news, reviews and interviews about the arts. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Thursday. Hope you enjoy the podcast, and if you have any questions or feedback, feel free to get in touch via the Triple R website. On the program today, lots to talk about. Uh, on the visual art front, we'll be finding out what's happening at the gallery Sullivan and Strumpf, one of the commercial galleries that uh, well established in Sydney and opened a Melbourne branch in October last year. So we're going to talk a little bit about the commercial art world, the commercial gallery sector, and what's coming up at Sullivan and Strumpf. Ursula Sullivan is one of the directors of the gallery network Sullivan and Strumpf, who are established in Sydney. They opened a Melbourne uh, gallery in October last year. Uh, and Ursula, for people who aren't familiar with your gallery, what differentiates it from other private galleries? What makes Sullivan and Strumpf unique? Oh, good morning, Richard. Thank you so much for having me on. Um, yeah, uh, what makes us unique? That's a very good question. Well, we're a commercial gallery, and there are other commercial galleries, but I think our kind of point of difference is that we really are about supporting the artists in a long term, with a long term view. So, you know, there might be other galleries that have an exhibition, and they have this sort of rolling exhibition calendar, and you go and have your show as an artist, and then that's it, and then you might schedule in another show or you might do a show somewhere else. But for our gallery, we're definitely really interested in working deeply with an artist and really with a long-term view. I think that's probably the biggest difference. And would you say that long-term view also extends to some of the collectors that, uh, that you work with? Yeah, I mean, some of the collectors that we work with, we've been working with for 20 years, so it's been, um, that's, and obviously an incredibly, anything long-term is incredibly rewarding. Um, and to see people evolve, as we have evolved as well, um, is really exciting. And why was the, what kind of motivated the decision or drove the decision to open a Melbourne chapter of Sullivan and Strumpf last year? Yeah, we get that question a lot, but it seems like such a no-brainer to us. We've been working in the um, commercial art world since 2005, and really from that day, um, we were participating in the Melbourne Art Fair, and we always showed artists from Melbourne, so we, we've been sort of going up and down um, with Melbourne continuously for the last 20 years, so it just sort of felt like a natural progression to actually, you know, open up a gallery there. Uh, and in terms of ambitions for the gallery, you've also got, uh, what, a permanent presence in Singapore as well, I believe. Well, sort of. When COVID, COVID um, hit in March 2020 and our lease in Singapore was, um, was up in April 2020 and, you know, at that stage we all thought the world was ending. So we let our space go, but we kept our, um, our director there, Megan, who's been absolutely amazing throughout this whole time. Um, and we've done some really incredible pop-up shows and art fairs and things like that over there, but without a gallery space. But, we, you know, we might be changing that in the near future. How important is it to have not only a national uh, kind of view of the art world, but an international one, given those connections with Southeast Asia? I think it's really easy to become inward-looking and, and only sort of... And, and sort of like have these boundaries around yourself because that's the only area that you look in. So the broader, the broader your boundaries that you can make it, the better off 
your sort of insight into the world can be, whether or not that's a philosophical insight or an artistic insight. So we feel that having that space outside of Australia gives us a slightly different perspective and a more sort of uh, just a bigger view of the world about what's going on. So we're not just talking about Melbourne, we're not just talking about Sydney and we're not just talking about Singapore and it just takes you takes you further out of yourself so you can have a, a more interesting experience and worldview. Yeah. Now, for listeners who may be curious to visit the gallery, I've certainly I've had conversations with some friends in the past. They may, they may be comfortable going to an ARI, an artist-run initiative, for example, or wandering around the, the National Gallery or somewhere like that. But yeah. I, I've noticed that there is a reticence from some of my friends to visit commercial galleries. <laughs> Why do you think there is That's a... That's a shame. I know, but one of the things that I wondered about that is because of the word commercial in the title of commercial galleries, I wonder whether some people are are put off looking at the art just for art's sake uh, as opposed to kind of uh, visiting with the intention to buy. Do you think there's some kind of, of, not stigma, but uh, a hurdle to be addressed there in terms of gaining visitors from the broader world? Yeah, look, I think it's a very... um I think it's a result of a very old-school approach that a lot of commercial galleries did have, probably in the 80s and the 90s, and it was very much this sort of elitist, um, I'm sorry, you're not welcome here, you can't have a price list, you can't do this, you know, you have to, you have to jump these hurdles in order to come here. And that was definitely around um, in, in those pre- earlier decades. But, of course, there's been an enormous democratisation of everything, really, and we are extremely welcoming and make it a point for all of our team to be too welcoming to everybody because our role is commercial, for sure. I mean, it's our, you know, it's our job to sell the work of the artist so that they can survive and so that we can survive. But we also have extra roles which involve, you know, introducing these artists to the broader public and, and we're very um, welcoming of that particular role as well. And we just... We try and do community engagement things, you know, like we've had big talks with, say, for example, um, one of our earlier exhibitions was with Ramesh Mario Nithyendran, and and he had done a commission with Atlassian, and then we invited the staff of Atlassian to come in, and then they had a book drawer, and so we, we, we do try and develop the community around art, which is not just about buying artwork. It's about education and, and allowing our artists to be, you know... Um, to be known in the broader public, which I think benefits everybody in the end. As a gallerist, what do you look for in art when you're visiting an artist's studio, for example, or, or looking at a, um, uh, a graduate survey show, for example? Kind of what draws you to a, a particular artwork or style of art or, or body of work from an artist? Uh, I think the word I would use would be quality, and that word goes across all the different aspects. So there has to be a quality of concept, there has to be a quality of execution, there has to be a certain quality to the person as well, uh, and all the all the many different aspects, there has to be a very high quality to it. Um, so, um, you know, the, the concept has to be strong, it has to be unique, it has to be interesting and relevant to the contemporary world that we live in today. The, 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 the artwork has to be made in a really um, solid way so that it's not going to fall apart. I mean, some graduate students sort of haven't really embraced um, constructing a stretcher very well or they have 
um, making ceramics where things fall off them and they're easily broken and those sorts of ideas. So there has to be a quality of construction. There has to be a quality to the person. You have this is we have very deep relationships with people, so trust is incredibly important. So there has to be, we have to be able to trust the person. They need to be able to trust us as well. Um, they're all incredibly important aspects to taking on an artist. If you've just tuned in... Does I'm that answer? It does, it does, thank you. Now, uh, yeah. <laughs> I'm speaking with Ursula Sullivan from Sullivan & Strumpf Galleries, uh, located in both Sydney and Melbourne. The Melbourne uh, Gallery opened in Rupert Street, Collingwood, in October last year. Now, Ursula, you're part of, a, um, I guess, uh, the commercial gallery sector. How collegiate is yeah. that sector? it is and sometimes it isn't because we all want to show the great artists and so we can get very competitive in that um in that regard but then it's kind of like um you know when you when you're in australia you can bitch about australians but um uh, and then when you go to new zealand you can bitch about australians but no new zealanders can bitch australians you know what i mean it's like your family in a way um (laughs) So um, so we'll jump to defend any of the good galleries that are in our team if someone's trying to take them down. But then we're also really competitive. So, um, yeah, it, yeah. It, so it depends on the day, I think. <laughs> <laughs> and who you're talking to as well. Uh, now, in terms yeah. of uh, upcoming exhibitions at Sullivan and Strumpf in uh, Collingwood at 107 to 109 Rupert Street, Collingwood, uh, an exhibition uh, by Seth Birchall opening later this month. Yes. Yes, it's a, going to be a beautiful show. It's been a long time since Seth has shown in Melbourne, so I think there'll be a lot of people that are really interested to see how his practice has developed. And he's moved a little, like quite a bit, from Bali to um, Bigger, and now he's working out of Sydney. So, so that'll be quite an interesting show as well. And well. Obviously, a lot of people that we're showing haven't shown in Melbourne for a long time, so this first year of our being in Melbourne is quite exciting for a lot of people. So following Seth, we have Glenn Barclay, who's a fabulous ceramic artist, um, and then Lara Merritt, Jemima Wyman, Sam Leach, who is a classic Melbourne artist, but hasn't shown there in probably a decade. So there's lots of good things coming up. Uh, and uh, in terms of Seth's exhibition in particular, which is called mm. The Moon Underwater, for people who don't know know Seth's work. Tell us a little bit about his his style, his aesthetic. Seth has a very romantic kind of expressionistic style of painting, primarily landscapes. Um, He has an incredible facility with paint and knowledge about painting, uh, which he brings to to the works. And they're always very um, beautiful sort of palm trees and landscapes and idyllic landscapes. There's kind of like portals into another world. Um, He has a very sort of um, calm and zen practice and, um, you know, is very much into meditation and sees his paintings as meditations. So they have this kind of vibrating energy around them, which is very um, seductive. Seth Birchall, The Moon Underwater, will be showing at Sullivan and Strumpf, Melbourne, located at 107 to 109 Rupert Street, Collingwood, from the 18th of May until the 10th of June. And you can find out more details by going to www.sullivanstrumpf, which is uh, spelt, uh, the end is a, is a PF. So sullivanstrumpf.com for more details about both the Melbourne Gallery and the Sydney Gallery and the artists they represent as well. Ursula Sullivan, thank you very much 
much for joining us on the program Thank today. Thank you. Thank you so much. Triple R on FM, digital, online and via the app. When Christos Cholkis's first novel, uh, Loaded, was published back in uh, 2005, I do believe. Oh, uh, no, no. No? Well, I, I, a decade uh, before. A decade that. before. 96, I think. 96. Okay. I was, needed a date at my fingertips. But when it came out, I described it. Uh, I raved about it in the fanzine I was publishing at the time. Um, a great fanzine, by the way. Thank you very much. Uh, I said, the author's dazzling debut novel, its sparse words burn. Uh, so uh, you'd tell I was a bit of a fan. Uh uh, I love it, Richard, because um, I actually wrote for, for that fanzine. You did? Oh, yeah, you were. Yeah, it was terrific. The Burning Times. Now I'm also joined, as well as by Christos, who is uh, the author of seven novels, a playwright, a screenwriter, uh, and a co-host of Superfluity here on Triple R. But we are also joined in the studio by playwright Dan Giovanoni, who, amongst other things, has written my favourite ever show for young people, Bambit's Book of Lost Stories. Oh, that's very kind. Thank you. My absolute pleasure. Uh, it's a perfect example of how uh, shows for children can tackle incredibly dark and dense themes mm. in accessible ways that leave adults weeping and the kids going, why are you crying? <laughs> and you've also obviously written and worked with MTC, kind of many other companies as well, Red Stitch and the like. But the two of you have collaborated on an adaptation of Loaded. Dan, how did you first experience Christos's work? What was your ex- first exposure to it? I th- Christos's work, full stop. I think the first novel of Christos's that I read was um, Dead Europe. I just picked it up at the bookshop and I bought it. I think I read it as research for another play that I was writing um, about my own sort of, you know, journey through my family and culture. Um, but I first came to Christos's work as a playwright when Stephen Nicolazzo, the director who's also directed Loaded, approached me about adapting a collection of short stories that Christos had written. Um, well, this was an anthology of short work that Christos had written over his um career so far um thus far thus far (laughs) um called merciless gods um and we adapted eight of the stories from that collection into um a stage work that uh Stephen and I collaborated on together with the um sort of um Oversight or with the support of? I, I would say uh, support and genuine e- e- excitement. Um, Richard, it took, uh, I mean, Stephen approached me first, and mm. I always say that, and it's absolutely true. We had a coffee uh, in the middle of the city, and I knew, I, I say five minutes, but I reckon in three minutes, I knew that I, w- I just said, please, please do whatever you like with it. And, um, and through Stephen, then I got introduced to Dan, and so I'm not going to take any credit for Merciless Gods, but being in the room with you guys and seeing what... I mean, I, I was just so excited by what Little Ones did with with my work um, and what a great theatrical experience it was. And I just I just wanted to work with them. <laughs> it was as simple as that. <laughs> yeah, likewise. When um, the opportunity came up again for Loaded to happen and... Um, as it was sort of all sort of landing, um, Stephen texted me one day and said, how would you feel about working on it with Christos? And I just thought, my God, like what a incredible opportunity to... I mean, I'd, I'd met Christos through Merciless Gods and um, he's just such a generous... Um, <laughs> 
generous writer, sweet man, you know, beautiful collaborator to sit next to and 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 dream up ideas with. Um, I couldn't say no. Had you red loaded at that point? Or? Yes, I had, but I think it was much earlier. I can't sort of remember when I first read it. When I came back to it, um, it was very familiar to me. Um, so, yeah, I was familiar with the material. I was obviously familiar with the film. Um, and that made the you know prospect of it all the more exciting but also daunting. Yeah. Christos, going back to the 90s when you were writing Loaded, um, it was, what, originally rejected by Blackwattle Press, the, That's right. a, a, yeah. a, a gay and lesbian uh, Those were the imprint. terms we used back then. Yes. <laughs> um, uh, because it wasn't gay enough. Uh, actually, it, it, they thought it was homophobic and... Um, I think they were scared of the language of it. And I, I just, I always feel really cautious now. I mean, maybe it is just a perspective that comes with, with time. But, I mean, they were really good people, right? They were, you know, Blackwater were publishing queer stuff way... You yeah, know, I mean, Camping by a Billabong, for example, the anthology of queer history yeah. is a fantastic book. But they were another generation, I guess, Richard. You know that too. So there was... You, you, we were, you know, we were, were comrades still, and we were during that time. And it was... I think they found... The language really confronting the idea of a character that didn't speak in a particular way about sexuality. Uh, the yeah, I just think they they weren't ready for for that material. So it's strange going back to the book. Uh, I haven't a bit, you know. Uh, of course, it's going to be a different experience to the one you've had, Dan. But for me, it's going back to this character that I created so long ago and trying to remember both the character and the, the young man I was, you know, because uh, in it. And, and there was a nervousness before we began for me, I think. So my instinct was just, I want to work with Dan, I want to work with Stephen. I think you have to trust that, you know, for anyone listening who's involved in the arts, you know that, right? Collaborations are really, really great. Co- collaborations are really rare. And so when you've got found good people, you just go with it. Yeah. Uh, but sorry, oh, I was just going to say because the the play that has developed as a result of this kind of trusting collaboration and friendship between the two of you is it's a one man show. Mm. Uh, so you have one actor kind of embodying Ari, the protagonist. Uh, but when did that creative decision come about? For example, how early in the the process of adapting the book did you decide? Oh, it should be one person on stage, not a cast of really five or six. I think it was pretty much one of the first sort of decisions yeah. that we made, really, before we even discussed whether we were going to um, sort of be faithful to the Ari of the novel and set and set him, you know, off on his journey in 1996 Melbourne, or whether we were going to um, um, set him in the now. Set him now. Um, we always knew it was going to be Ari telling. Ari's story. I think that because was... that is sort of in part the experience of the novel too. You get this real sense that, like, at the start, he puts his headphones in, and you know, off he goes, and he's just you're in his head for for twenty four hours until he gets home again at the end of this epic night of, of partying um, and chaos. And there is something, uh, Richard. I think uh, you know. Uh, uh, what the stage does. So, just so listeners know that um, Malthouse had commissioned the work. We knew really early that it was going to be a one-person show, uh, and then the, the big decision was whether we set it historically in the nineties or move it forward. And we made that choice, and we can talk about that later if you want. But what was then? 
This was in 2019, and then something called COVID happened. Yeah, because <laughs> there was going to be a 2020 2020 kind of show. Yeah. yeah, and and we were really lucky. I, 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 you know, Dan and I, all of us, are really grateful that Malthouse were committed enough that they there was an audio play that was created yeah. from Loaded that that was released. But mate, seeing it in the theatre. Just and Danny Ball, who plays Ari, is so compelling and yeah. so fantastic that, and it, you need that. There's something about the visceral experience of that character. He's 19. He's going. It's a night and a day that is so explosive that just, uh, you know, I just we we had a run the other day, and I I really was literally at the edge of my seat. <laughs> Because I care for this young man, right? And I don't care about him as Christos Cholkas, the the adapter of the novel or the novelist itself. It's just he's so vulnerable. And I guess I didn't realise that back then um, when I was writing it. But he's so vulnerable. Wasn't there a point at some point that you actually killed him off in a kind of a digital online narrative? Oh, no, that was someone else. Oh, okay. (laughs) Yeah. Because I knew that he died and I couldn't remember whether you'd written that or somebody else had written that. No, 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 no. I think it was a whole list of uh, uh, Australian characters that ended up, you know, being sent off the mortal coil. Yeah. But I love the fact that kind of even kind of like two decades ago, you were prepared to hand that character over to somebody and say, do something else with it. Dan, for you, that sense of trust that Christos clearly has in you and your writing, how does that then empower you to make bold, brave decisions with the writing of the play and to perhaps sometimes challenge him and push back and go, well, you may have created it, but this is our version, not yours? I think because we had been through the process with Merciless Gods, um, I distinctly remember sitting, I sort of didn't, we had met, I think, sort of in the early part of Merciless Gods, but maybe, like, our conversation hadn't really sort of kicked in yet. And we sat down to read the, some of early material in a, in a development, and I was sat next to Christos, and I had, until that point, been completely fine with the idea of adapting this great man's work. And then suddenly, as... Stephen like started reading the opening stage directions. I was just like, "Oh my god! Oh my god! Oh my god!" The writer is sitting next to me. Um, what have I done? Um, but I think because we had sort of established a, a conversation between us in that early process, and some of the stories we really did a number on. You know, like we took an idea from Christos's work and sort of exploded it into something else. Um, there wasn't there wasn't a lot of fear. I, I wasn't sort of afraid of. Um, doing what I wanted to do with Ari. Um, Part of the challenge for us, I suppose, or for for me maybe, was um, that I was adapting the work of another writer um, with that writer. So, you know, the Ari's voice, which is sort of so um, complete and um, full, uh, Christos maybe could tap into that voice because he'd written it um, and, you know, we didn't want it to feel like there were two writers on this project, I guess. We wanted audience, the audience experience to be like of, of, of one character's voice. So I was certainly conscious about um, or conscious of that, but with, with that sort of singular voice of Ari as the source, um, it actually was sort of a, it was a delight and a pleasure you know, there were there were, t- there were times in early rehearsals where I would hear a line and be like, "Oh, that's not actually, that's not Ari. Ari wouldn't say that." In fact, you know, it, as early as you know, ten days ago, well, we saw yeah. a run, and I was like, "I don't think that's actually Ari's line." Um, and we would just sort of spitball and workshop something back and forth until 
I think that Dan, but you know, the the I rem- you know those moments are when you realise we do share the character because mm. that you you're you know you're not relying on me to go. That's not his voice. You know it instinctively because mm. you, you know the character now. And it's so the, the same thing happened with Merciless Gods. I've never gone back to a text um, this many times. Like I don't think I've ever read an author's work, um, the same work over and over and over again, the way I have. Um, your work. I feel like I have to make an apology. <laughs> <laughs> Never. But it is such a... Um, it really has been such an incredible experience swimming around in 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 Ari's... in Christos's language and in Ari's um, sort of world. Um, yeah. It's great. <laughs> <laughs> Let's talk about the idea of bringing Ari forward in time and creating a contemporary version of Loaded uh, because there are certainly some references in the book uh, that, for, for me, the, the guy with HIV who used to dance on, the, yeah, yeah. on his kind of car on Brunswick Street, for example, mm. the punters club, these things are no longer with us. The Peel is still with us. Yeah, <laughs> it makes an appearance. Yeah. The, it feels like the, the Peel is just permanently ingrained into uh, kind of some of the, the character of Melbourne. It's certainly ingrained into the book. But, yeah, talk to us about the process of bringing... I just have to say really quickly, I've never read The Haunting of Hill House before, Shirley Jackson's great Horace story, and I just finished it and I had the peel in my head. <laughs> <laughs> like a great setting. So tell us about bringing Ari into the present day. We, I remember talking in that first development that we did, the three of us talking about Loaded, um, we all sort of clocked that it was maybe like eight pages into the novel until you realised... Well, until there was a marker that said we're in the mid-90s. Um, I guess it was... Maybe it's the Walkman. It um, is the Walkman, yeah. That yeah. was the... the... But it, there are sort of, like, f- for, for, for chunks of it, it really it feels like it could be now, you know? And I think that was something that all of us picked up on and were like, well, what would it, what would it mean to... Um, you know, at, the, at that stage it was 2019, 2020, so what would it mean to bring him into now? His, this, this, um, this kid, I think, could exist now. Melbourne, the other character in the novel, really was the, the, the thing that had changed, right? Yeah, that's right. And that was actually the, the, both the most fascinating and kind of complex part of doing the adaptation for me mm. was to go, actually, there's a story that is about a young uh, 19-year-old um, queer Greek Australian guy, right? Um, and his confusion and his energy and his love of music and all that, like, you know, it can be 1996, it can be 2022, 23, you get that, right? But Melbourne is no longer the same city, and the, the, so what is around him is, has changed. And that was a bit scary and also really exciting to kind of go, well, okay, what. Dan and I knew Ari's voice. And, you know, we knew him very early on as a character, but actually how would he express that new city? Because part of the novel has always been, it's been a map of the city, right? Yeah, north, south, east, west. west. Mm. And it's it's actually, yeah, it was a bit daunting to go, um, and that was where 
having the collaboration because, you know, Dan's a generation younger than I am and we can do those conversations to go, well, what language would he be using? Because the language would be different now. Like, what? how would he be thinking about things? And that was... I found that exciting. I was so scared, Richard, initially because I thought... You know, I'm a man of a certain age <laughs> and um, can I go back to this character? And there had been part of the conversation had been whether we made him a man of, you know, in his late 40s, I can't remember. Right, so yeah. it's actually who did Ari, Ari become? And maybe there's a story there, but I think it was much more interesting and the much better choice to stay in that young person's voice. Yeah, and, and it was sort of, uh, you know, as as writers, it was a... It was an exciting challenge to to think about how this young person, with with so many sort of different conditions on him, like a, you know Ari in the novel, lives off lives off um, his youth allowance or his Centrelink payment, and you know he still can afford to buy a bag of speed and have a wild night out. Whereas, like it's you know it's hard to do, do that, that now. now. Yeah. <laughs> that becomes an issue, right? Yeah. Like how do you do that? So there's practicalities like that, but then also you know he spends a big chunk of the novel at the retreat. The retreat of the novel is not the retreat that it is today, and so where does where does um, what parts of Melbourne pull him? You know, yeah, what's the equivalent his, yes. today? Yeah. yeah, that's right. What's he doing with his Friday night? Um, and some of the places are the same. The peel is still there. It's still the, the place where he you know ends up um, at the end of the night. As so many lost <laughs> souls <have>. do. <laughs> <laughs> Been there, done that. Um, yeah, yeah. It was. The, uh, I mean, that's. That part of it will be, I mean, there is all, that's the thing that I've missed about theatre, right, is because it's immediate, it would be so interesting to get people's response. And mm. unlike any other, unlike a novel, right, you can't, and Sasha Soldado always said this, Christos, you can't look over every reader's shoulder, you know, it's, it's a, di- whereas in theatre, you're there in the moment. And that's, and I, yeah, I want to hear the response to, um, you know, because I think there is a call, call and response. That's what we've been, talking about between the 90s and now in the novel mm. that, I th- that I hope is exciting for an audience. To yeah, it's exciting. It was exciting to, to, for me to watch it the other day in rehearsals. I really was like, these, they f- it feels like a companion piece. Which is one of the reasons I'm really looking forward to seeing it. A, because, yeah, I, kind of, I love the book. Kind of, I love Christos. Um, but I'm really intrigued to, to see kind of my memories layered over yeah. with something new and contemporary and to see how the adaption works. Uh, so, uh, obviously, music is a big part of the book. Uh, how is music represented in the, the stage production at the Malthouse? There is, um, there is music, and music is part of Ari's journey. It's not in the... We don't hear great slabs of songs in the same kind of way that um, that uh, you might expect, or something. I suppose you know with the, his 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 night is sort of soundtracked by his music, um, but I think he's always looking for music, isn't he? Like yeah, he talks yeah, about but... music a lot, but he's always like you. The, we wanted to sort of find a way, I guess, for that to be embodied rather than just like playing. There's a, and there's also, I mean, you know, the the way you build that is you've got to find, you know, so we know Ari the character and we know what he would, you know, what what kind of music would, would push him. And in a way what's been great working with Dan is there's a moment, I won't spoil it, like a, you know, a contemporary song that you've chosen and that he talks mm. about and it works so well in South. And there's a an album that I've chosen, Contemporary, in 
in the north section. And I think it really comes from that blend of you know that Ari's going to love this music, that you, you know he was, uh, was going to love him at 1990, in 1996 and if he had been 19 in... 2015 or whenever the track was out he would have loved it mm. but you also know it comes from your passion and my passion too that we we were writing i mean music is so central to the novel mm. so even though there aren't as dan said slabs of music the presence of sound mm. is 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 there from the get-go yeah there's yeah, still yeah. you know it's still the first thing that when he wakes up in the morning you know the sisters are playing and you know so so he, his because sister sledge Never ages. <laughs> <laughs> the Malthouse Theatre production of Loaded uh, previews tomorrow night uh, uh, with previews on Friday, Saturday, Monday and Tuesday uh, and then opens on Wednesday the 10th of May running through until the 28th of May uh, and you can book tickets at www.malthousetheatre.com.au the Christos Chalkis novel Loaded, first published in 1995, adapted by Christos and Dan Giovanoni for the stage. I can't wait to see it. A final question for you both. When the novel was first published, uh, some people found it very confronting, the language, the, the homophobia that kind of that the, is internalised by the it. character, um, uh, the sex, whatever. Some people loved it. Some people were shocked by it. Will the stage production confront some people as well, do you think, do you hope? I th- Ari is a provocative character and Dan and I couldn't do justice to him as a character without a sense of provocation. Uh, I've been saying this a lot, so I'm sorry for that. Um, I think there is a, a caution that is really important if it comes from thoughtfulness, right? Just actually thinking about the language. And there are moments we've done stuff with language that comes from that um, thoughtfulness. But I think caution that comes out of fear... Is, is, not, is not good. And I worry that there's a lot of caution that's coming out of fear. So we didn't want to lose. There are moments that Ari says things because he's a 19-year-old kid living in a world that's really bloody complex and really, really hard and it's confronting. But, you know, I, that's, that's what we've... You know, that's the, what the 19-year-old Christos wanted to read. That's what the 19-year-old Christos wanted to see on screen and see on stage. I think it would be a real mistake to let that aspect of Ari's character go. So, yes, is the short answer. <laughs> <laughs> cool. But I think the sex scenes are beautifully written as oh, well. Scene, so yeah, you know. yeah, yeah, the sex scenes are... I'm very much looking forward to seeing very it. Very erotic, actually. Okay. Well, I'll tell you kind of whether it turns me on or not after oh, the show, Christos, next week. So, uh, okay. Uh, loaded, as I said, on at the Malt House, uh, 113 Sturt Street, South Bank, from the 5th to the 28th of May, uh, malthousetheatre.com.au for bookings. Dan and Christos, thank you both very much for joining us here at Triple R. Thanks, Mr. Watts, Richard. Love you. It's always a pleasure. Triple R. Regular listeners to this show would know that I occasionally jaunt around the countryside to go to festivals in Perth, in Adelaide, in Brisbane, occasionally Hobart or Launceston or Darwin when I'm lucky. Uh, And that's partially because of my day job at Arts Hub and it's also partially because I love seeing new work interstate in the hope that it will come to Melbourne at some point and I can recommend it to you all, which is exactly and precisely the case with the next show we're going to talk about. It's a production called Lenore. The Rain, created by Perth company The Last Great Hunt. It's a fascinating and fun piece of theatre. 
in which you, the audience, are watching a European art house film, subtitled, think SBS. It's being created live before your eyes with the actors madly running around on stage in front of you and behind things and out of scenes and creating special effects with cameras. It's technically complex. It's a, a superb piece of theatre and its co-director and one of the performers... In Lenore, the rain, Adrian Daff joins us in the studio now. Adrian. Hello, how are you? Really well. Thanks for, for joining us here at Triple R. Oh, thank you so much for having me and for recommending the show. Yeah. Well, because, yeah, I saw it at its original Perth Festival run and I was instantly enchanted by the, the notion of, um, I don't know, uh, both satirising and leaning into the, the kind of art house film tropes, late night, SBS films, that kind of thing, and seeing it done live in front of us. At the time, it felt like a very ambitious project for The Last Great Hunt. Oh, absolutely. And you're, you're, you're absolutely bang on with the SBS reference. It, it's really interesting with the show. It took us about four years to develop, and it was really interesting that that SBS late-night aesthetic actually preceded the story. So it's it's really, really ingrained in it. So it's just really lovely to hear you respond to that. Ambitious? Absolutely. I was talking to a couple of the other people in the ensemble last night where we were kind of talking about when you call something experimental and what that can mean and whether that's good or bad. And we were like, Lenore's process was the experiment and the show's kind of the outcome of the experiment. So there, along the way, there were lots of things of like, will this work? Will people want, will they respond to it? And a, a big thing about the show is you're, even though it's a, a film being made in front of you, that's absolutely what it is. It's also a piece of theatre at, at its heart, at its, at its absolute core. And I think that the really interesting ambition part of it was if people are watching something being made in front of them, will they still be swept away as you are when you're watching a film to, you know, that kind of level of suspension of disbelief that happens in, in front of you? And the remarkable thing was, was that when we did early showings, not only were people like, we love the lo-fi way things come together, but we want to see it all. We want to see how the sausage is made from go to woe, don't hide anything. And that's still something that I find so fascinating about human curiosity and imagination. You can see that it's someone standing in front of a fan holding onto a bar and you're like, no, they're on a motorbike. Like you can think the two things at once but believe both of them equally. It's really remarkable. One of the things that was also delightful to watch it was uh, just the the sense of controlled chaos of of watching uh, the the members of the last great hunt frantically running around trying to hit their cues, hit their marks, make sure that something would happen. There was a, a sense of watching a juggling act where it could all collapse under its own weight at any moment, and I think that was part of the fun. And there's also a really kind of strong sense of humour to the production as well. Yeah, and I, I think also as well that again going back to that thing about like you know we, we, we joke often that we are making a, a film that goes for a, you know an hour and a half in front of people and the joke always is like oh there's a reason people take three months to do this and we're trying to do it in an hour and a half but the, the 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 controlled chaos which I think is a lovely way of putting it there's kind of again because of showing all the seams at this there's a transparency there that means that the audience is really, really generous to seeing how it's all being made and seeing us all kind of like running around. There's an exchange there energetically that just it feels like we're all part of it together. It feels generous. It feels like, yeah, we're all in the thick of it, which 
I guess is the point of watching live performance really, isn't it? You want that kinesthetic kind of exchange with the people who you're watching on stage. So I think it does, yeah, it, it breeds a kind of generosity, a humour, uh, you know, to be honest, like a kind of forgiveness if something sort of goes wrong, which <laughs> controlled chaos, you know, it's probably it's probably kind of likely, but, you know, our attitude is that uh, we set off on the roller coaster of Lenora at the beginning of the night and see you on the other side. <laughs> I feel kind of sorry for the stage manager, but... <laughs> Gosh, you should see her set up. Not only is the stage manager, you know, operating uh, QLab for any uh, theatre buffs out there, she's also operating uh, subtitles and audio and, like, we were even at one point wondering if we should uh, get her a foot pedal so that she could use two hands and one foot to operate the show and that's when you know that you have set a near-impossible task for your operator to, um, to you know... Do the show. Now, Adrian, we're talking about the setup of the show. Let's talk, get to grips with the story that will unfold. Um, Lenore is set on uh, an island nation called Solset. Correct, yeah. Uh, in which everybody speaks a completely made up language. Yes. <laughs> they uh, So we call it Solsetian. It is a combination of kind of North Atlantic languages. So you've got Swedish, Norwegian, Danish. I mean, departing from that slightly, there is some Afrikaans and just a smattering of other words and slang from, from different languages to make Solset. And when people say, well, why don't you just speak gibberish uh, and not then set yourself the impossible task of learning a completely different language. The reason why we didn't do that is because then you just lose all the specificity. So you need to know when your scene partner is finishing a line, your stage manager needs to know what subtitle to operate. So I know it sounds insane, but it did end up just being easier to make and learn a completely new language. How hard is it to learn dialogue in a completely new language as opposed to memorising a normal script? I mean, I might be the wrong person to ask because I'm one of the people who made the language and really campaigned very hard for it. But I, it's it's a simple language with very, very basic grammar. And um, so, yeah, look, it, it, is, it is difficult, but, you know, it's possible. Solset is experiencing uh, environmental issues, so there is that's a, a kind of thematic element of the show. Uh, there's drought, there's water restrictions. Sounds very familiar to some Melburnians from a while ago, and plenty of people from Perth as well, I'm sure. Um, but there's also um, pressures on relationships, couples uh, falling apart, couples being drawn together. There's cactuses, there's goldfish fanciers, there's uh, a weird mix of elements and ideas. Given the way The Last Great Hunt operate, you're a collective of artists. Uh, talk to us about the process of making the work in terms of input from fellow creatives. You just said, for example, that you pushed for the, the artificial language and mm. were uh, uh, largely responsible for some of that. So that's one aspect of the work. But how do the, the different cogs of The Last Great Hunt, because there's, what, about seven of you? There's six of us. Um, and the way that that works is so we there were four of us who started developing the show and then when we were – so 
by that stage, we were developing the the form and all of the cinema tricks that we wanted to do. And then we had started working on the story and had like a, a storyboard and all of the characters and all of their kind of entangled storylines. And then when we go into rehearsal of a show, when we got the full ensemble together, so we had the other two hunters in and we had some external artists join us as well the devising and rehearsal kind of continued. So four original creators, but absolutely that 2019 season that you saw, every single person on stage was responsible for the creation of that version of the show that you saw. So I think what's interesting about Lenore is that the story came last. So all of the the, the, the visuals, even down to like the makeup we wear, that came before story, which <laughs> I just find delightful. Um, and I think that it meant that, Holding off on story is something that um, we all have different processes of working, but quite a few of us really like to hold story at bay until we really know what the form of the theatre is that we're working with. Because once you know the world, once you have the form, you're already having sort of story ideas that don't feel shoehorned. It feels a bit more organic. So the way that the story came about was we knew that we were going to have these intertwined stories. We knew we were really kind of obsessed with this idea of like the orchestra continuing to play as the Titanic sunk. And so there were those sorts of like more feelings like or, or a, a feeling we wanted to inspire in the audience. So then you had the aesthetic and then we thought subtitles were funny and then we thought it would be cool to have a narrator. Then we thought it would be cool to do it in a foreign language. So it, it kind of builds up in, in layers like that. And yeah, it is a it, it is a really complex story when I every time we perform it I think yeah it, it is complex but it was sort of built up over a long time and I think that the what's really interesting about the 2019 season say uh, versus the 2023 season that we did in Perth just recently is that we've changed very few things a few tiny things in the story but the overwhelming feedback was gee that climate change stuff hits harder like I really felt that in my heart and I'm like, oh, that's so interesting because it must be – that's a bit of what's going on in the world because we didn't really change that much. So it's good to hear that that's still hitting and it's – I mean, of course, it's relevant. That's the world we're living in. But, um, yeah, it's it's kind of like a – yeah, the climate change stuff is in there because that is absolutely the reality of the world we're living in, but it's definitely still a piece of entertainment. It's definitely a celebration of humanity, which is how we like to describe it. I'm speaking with Adrian Daff, who's the co-director and one of the performers in Lenore, The Rain, by Perth-based theatre company The Last Great Hunt, one of uh, several works by The Last Great Hunt that I've seen and definitely a show I recommend. Now, in terms of um, the, the other members of The Last Great Hunt, am I right in thinking that Chris Isaacs has just left the company to go and work at Black Swan. Yeah, he's going to be the literary manager. He is on tour with us, though, so we do. We are six still, technically, till the end of tour, and then we become a five. So he will be going on to uh, do the literary, literary manager role at Black Swan and will still be involved with us as The Last Great Hunt, but just in a, in a slightly different way, which... You know, that's kind of what we existed, how, how we all got together with different careers to come together and start making work is to find out a way to keep supporting one another as our careers grow and develop and branch off into different areas. And also to find a way of 
merging your different approaches to making work as well. Totally. Because uh, if I think about uh, Chris, for example, and also Jeffrey J. Fowler, I think more kind of traditional scripted work. Uh, then there's there are other works that are really interactive, uh, a couple of those that you've done. There's children's work, for example, as well. So the clearly the, the different passions and uh, approaches to making uh, that... Uh, collectively result in a really eclectic mix of theatrical forms. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that what underpins that to sort of make the work all work together in terms of, say, like quality is that we're really process-driven so that there's, you know, we spend, as I said with Lenore, it was like four years in the development room. That's not four years, like nine to five every single day, by the way, but, you know, four years kind of on and off. And I think that with uh, we really, really value process. It's a fundamental part of how we make work. And every single work that you see, whether it's it's Dark Outside, New Owner, which is for children, uh, you know, Fagstag that Chris and Jeff wrote together, um, you know, Monroe and Associates, Whistleblower, the the one defining characteristic that they all have is that they have spent a lot of time in the development room and with a with a huge focus on process. The last great hunt are presenting Lenore the Rain uh, today and tomorrow only at 7.30pm at the Alexander Theatre at the Ian Potter Centre for Performing Arts at Monash University's Clayton Campus. Don't go to the Caulfield Campus by mistake. Uh, 48 Exhibition Walk Clayton, the Ian Potter Centre for Performing Arts, is where you want to go. Bookings at uh, monash.edu forward slash MPAC, M-P-A-C. So monash.edu forward slash MPAC to book for Lenore, the rain created by Perth's The Last Great Hunt. Tickets are $20 to $45, and trust me, this is a production you don't want to miss. So jump online, book now for Lenore tonight and tomorrow night, 7.30pm, at the Ian Potter Centre for Performing Arts at Monash Uni Clayton. I've been chatting with Adrian Daff from The Last Great Hunt. Adrian, it's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you. Triple R. Thanks for listening to this podcast of Triple R's Smart Arts, a weekly radio show bringing news, reviews and interviews about the arts, broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Thursday. Hope you enjoy the podcast, and if you have any questions or feedback, feel free to get in touch via the Triple R website. <laughs> <laughs>